0: who are in Christ Jesus by faith. And so here in the middle of this chapter, Paul's asking us, calling us to evaluate our hearts, to evaluate our lives, to see that that we are, in fact, in Christ Jesus, that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And that's also true of Romans chapter 8. This is a chapter which mentions the Holy Spirit around 20 times, which means the Holy Spirit's mentioned more in Romans 8 than any other chapter in the Bible. And in this passage, we have this assurance, this assurance of salvation, this assurance of no condemnation and no separation coming together with the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus in what we call the doctrine of adoption. And uh, Dr. Chris Sneller uh, preached on this doctrine of adoption last week from uh, from Galatians four, and the plan all along was for us to devote two weeks to this: one in Galatians, one here in Romans eight, because this doctrine of adoption is so important. It is so important that you know you'll hear. I mean. Every week, not almost, but every week okay, in our church, you'll hear the doctrine of justification taught, how God, through Christ, pardons our sin and counts us as righteous through faith in Jesus. And the doctrine of justification, it's an incredible, important, incredibly important doctrine. And it's great for our minds to reason through that, reason through justification. But this doctrine of adoption, as much as justification is for our minds, the doctrine of adoption is really for our hearts. For us to really internalize and experience our justification, what we have in Christ. And so I want to begin with sharing with you a a quote, the same quote that Chris shared last week from J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God. And it says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. I believe that, and I hope that you'll believe that all the more after our time together this morning. So I'm going to begin reading Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And it is absolutely true, given to us in love by our Heavenly Father for our good. And so we're going to ask really one big question that has five answers, but one big question of this passage, what does our spiritual adoption mean? And the five things we're going to see in this passage are, it means we have a new identity, it means we have a new intimacy, it means we have a new assurance, it means we have a new inheritance, and it means we have a new family likeness. So first, means we have a new identity. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, you may have noticed this, but the Apostle Paul refers to um, all followers of Jesus, both female and male, in verses 14 and 15, as sons, And then, later in the passage, in verses 16 and 17, refers to us as children. Now, teaching something here, this first point about we have a new identity, it's important that we understand, okay, the radical, revolutionary, powerful nature of this new identity that we all have, whether male or female, all have in Christ, and this new identity is as sons of God. Sons of God. Now, There are a few translations and many pastors who would say, you know what, we we need to realize this is the 21st century, and by calling women sons, the Apostle Paul here, he's demeaning, and this is offensive to women, and so we should change sons in verses 14 and 15 to children. I mean, that's what it really means. And what I want to say, friends, there are a few reasons why we cannot, we should not, we must not do this. The first is, In the original Greek text, it very, very clearly is the word for son. Very clearly. And so we need to be very careful, in fact, never try to improve or correct what the Bible clearly says. Now, second, what that means, we need to think about this, is the Bible is incredibly even-handed in its use of metaphors. And all the different metaphors in the Bible tell us something very important about God and our relationship with him. And so, ladies, please hear me on this. You should, no matter what someone else tells you, you should not, you should not resent being called a son of God any more than the men in this room should resent being called part of the bride of Christ. All of these metaphors tell us something very important. We shouldn't mess with them. The third thing... <laughs> is that if we, if we change sons to children, we miss just how powerful and revolutionary this passage was intended to be. Because it says that we are adopted sons. Adopted sons. Now, whenever we think about adoption today, in large part we're speaking about little children being adopted. Like babies, infants, toddlers, young children being adopted into a family a family that wants to love them and care for them. We, we think of, of orphans who are in need being adopted. But in large part, in the first century in Rome, that adoption was largely confined to wealthy, childless families who needed an heir. And so the adoption of the Apostle Paul, is speaking, this world he's speaking into, for them, adoption is primarily about a wealthy, childless couple who realizes we need an heir. So we're looking around for an, a young adult, a young man, a young man who is worthy to bear our family name. We're looking for a young man who's demonstrated some competency in living life, who seems to be wise, seems to be responsible, and we're going to bring him into our family. And whenever they brought this young man into their family, then he had a new identity, a new life. His old debts were all canceled. His old life, essentially, that book was closed and went away, and now he was a new man. Their son, part of their family, going to carry on the family name. And so what Paul's doing here is not in any way demeaning women, but he's elevating all women, all girls who are followers of Jesus up to the very same status with men who are followers of Jesus as sons of God, as full heirs of God. And we need to hear this. We need to understand also that the only way that any of us can become a child of God is through spiritual adoption. By faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And this new identity that we receive also highlights that this is all by grace alone. It's all by grace alone. You see, adoption in the first century, once again, was about finding a worthy young man to adopt. But we would all be terrible adoptees, wouldn't we? We're not very worthy. We're not very deserving at all, are we, of our adoption. That it has to be received by grace. Received by grace. You see, friends, do you know just how radical this idea of spiritual adoption is? I mean, when you stop and think about it, do you know what your identity, what your relationship to God was before he graciously adopted you into his family? Do you know how Paul describes it earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That while Paul says that before we're adopted as sons over here, that we start out as enemies. We, not neutral, but we start out as enemies. And God moves us through spiritual adoption all the way from enemies to dearly loved sons. Dearly loved, worthy sons who have access to everything. That We're not moved from enemies to slaves. We're not moved from enemies to servants. We're moved from enemies not to neutral. We're moved from enemies to sons. And so we shouldn't miss this. We shouldn't change these words. And we shouldn't miss our identity and it comes to us by grace you see we verse 15 tells us that we receive this right you receive it we don't earn it we don't work for it because we couldn't it comes to us freely at great cost to jesus it costs him everything but that's our spiritual adoption it's a new identity old life gone new life has become new creations in christ the new identity gives way to a new intimacy a new intimacy, an intimacy, that's intimacy that says that we are no longer afraid of God. Look at verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so I think that what Paul's is saying is that maybe before we became Christians, we were fearful of God, fearful of God's judgment of us, fearful of God's judgment of our sin. But that's no longer the case. We have nothing to fear anymore. You remember verse one, right? There's now no condemnation left for us, not today, and will not be tomorrow or any day after that. And the reason why is because Jesus was condemned in our place as our substitute on the cross, And so there's no longer any reason to be afraid. And this intimacy, this new intimacy also means that we no longer should view God as being distant. Sociologist Christian Smith led the largest research study of young adults in American history. And he studied the spirituality of teenagers and young adults, and the results are found in uh, his book, Soul Searching. And some of the results um, say this. One, that most young adults, most teenagers, believe that God exists, but they believe this about the God who exists. They believe there's a God who made the world, but now he watches life on earth, but isn't involved in our lives in any meaningful way. Kind of set things in motion and stepped away. So, so my fear for us is whenever I talk about your spiritual adoption and viewing God as a father, my fear is that at best if you, you view God as a distant, disengaged, absentee father. But that's not at all what Paul's saying, saying. Right? If you look at verse 15, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Those, that, that's, those are words of intimacy. See, in the first century, that Abba was an everyday family word. Listen to how Doctor Martin Lloyd Jones describes it. He says, "Abba was the word that was used familiarly by children talking to their fathers. A child does not always address his father as father. He uses terms such as papa or dad. We might even say daddy. That that is the kind of meaning represented by this word Abba. It was a word list by a little child. See, it's both gentle and intimate, and it's passionate as well. That there's a cry." Right, literally a loud scream that the Holy Spirit screams from our hearts to God in this intimacy, Abba, Father. I, I think of it this way, and those of you who are dads know this, you remember whenever your kids are little and they wake up from a bad dream in the middle of the night and oftentimes they're saying, Daddy, 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 over and over and over again and they're not going to stop until you go. And I think of it like that, that this is that this kind of word that it's only going to be made right if if I go and help my child. And it's also this cry that believes God's not distant. My heavenly father's not distant. He, he hears me and he cares and that he will come. And like I said earlier, that so our adoption, it's what justification feels like. Intimacy. See, a, a few weeks ago, I was in my office having a very important meeting with one of you, and it was a very important meeting, and uh, it was in the morning, and I didn't know this, but my kids were, they were here on campus for some program, and in the meeting, I could, I could see the window, little slit window in my, in my office door, and I saw somebody on tippy-toes, little head pop over, and I could recognize who that was, and so you know what I did? I respectfully pressed pause on that important meeting and I got up and I went outside and I gave those kids, those Harris kids, a hug. Do you know why I did that? Because I am pastor to hundreds of people, but I am daddy to four human beings. And so they have intimacy and they have access to me that nobody else has. And I want them to never, ever doubt that, ever. Ever not too busy i'm not distracted i'm not disengaged and now i think what paul's saying to us here in romans 8 is that our heavenly father wants us to know that we have that kind of intimacy and that kind of access that that god wants you know, we have intimacy and access with god the father it's so much greater okay than what any earthly father wants to give to their kids and so this intimacy means no more fear no more thinking that god is distant or distracted because he's not He's not. I mean, think about how Jesus prays. Whenever we see Jesus praying in, in the gospel, how does he pray? He addresses God as Father or as Abba. Nolan led us in the Lord's Prayer. Remember in Matthew 6, verses 7 and following, how does Jesus teach the disciples to pray? He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. You see, we're supposed to address God as Father, our Father, when we pray. Because honestly, to not do that, is irreverent. You see, God wants us to enjoy this intimacy and this access with Him. And so we're supposed to address Him by this kind of family name. He's our Heavenly Father. He's our Abba. He's, He's not just the big guy in the sky, okay? but that He is our Father. See, there's a level of reverence that can be irreverent. So my kids are getting old enough now to where some of your kids are coming home uh, with them, which is which is great. Uh, most of your kids are really good kids. No, I'm just I'm just kidding. But the um, the uh, and so the kids come home and and your kids, you know, they you've taught them well and they address me as Pastor Richard, and I love that. Okay, I didn't grow up in the church as a little kid, so I never had a home church pastor, but I remember. And when I became a Christian in college, hearing people talk about their, their pastor growing up. And I look, hopefully, one day that your kids will think fondly of me as their pastor growing up. But your kids address me as Pastor Richard. Now, that's appropriate. If any of my kids ever dare to call me Pastor Richard, I would very quickly put an end to that. They're not going to call me Pastor Richard, right? They're going to call me daddy, or they're going to call me dad. Because there's a sense in which a certain level of reverence that ignores the intimacy and the access is actually irreverent. There's intimacy, there's access that comes from this new identity. Now, thirdly, there's also a new assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, the Greek word translated bears witness Um, literally means to testify in support of someone. And so I think that Paul is intentionally using courtroom legal language. Because if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you know this is true, that there are times when Satan, the great accuser, and the sin living in our own hearts will accuse us and will say to us, you think God still loves you after you did that again? You think God's going to forgive you again? I mean, okay, yeah, maybe God forgave you the first 99 times, but you think God's going to forgive you for that, that easily once again? You think that? And I think what Paul's telling us is that the Holy Spirit dwells inside true followers of Jesus to testify, to bear witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Now, how, how does the Spirit do this? Well, there's a word from pastor theologian R.C. Sproul that I think makes this very practical. He says, that Paul's talking about how the Spirit of the Lord confirms a truth to our human spirit. The Spirit does not come and whisper into our ear when we're driving down the highway, relax, you're one of mine. We need to understand that when the Spirit communicates to God's people, He communicates to them by the Word, with the Word, through the Word, and never against the Word. And this is why it's so important, friends, for us to be people of the Word. You know, Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. That's why it's so important Whenever we come in here in this room that we need to sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, and preach the Bible, because it is the Bible, it is God's Word that the Spirit uses to assure us of our adoption as children of God. Now, what does this testimony of the Spirit, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? Well, I'm not sure that it's even describable or explainable. But if anyone can explain it, then Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, probably can. And Here's what he says. And what is the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father? I cannot tell you, but if you have ever felt it, you'll know it. It's a sweet compound of faith that knows God to be my father, love that loves him as my father, joy that rejoices in him as my father, fear that trembles disobey him because he is my father, and a confident affection, that trustfulness that relies upon him and casts itself wholly upon him because it knows by the infallible witness of the Holy Spirit that the God of earth and heaven is that father of my heart. So our spiritual adoption means a new identity, a new intimacy, a new assurance. And then fourthly, it means a new inheritance. Look at verse 17 with me. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Once again, another reason why we should not change the word sons to children because Paul is emphasizing, okay, our adoption to be heirs both for women and men, both for boys and girls, that the Holy Spirit has made us heirs through this spiritual adoption. Well, what, what is our inheritance? If we are heirs, what is our inheritance? Well, uh, Peter describes it this way in First Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance is pretty great. It means that the new heavens and new earth will not disappoint us as most of life does here on this earth. It means that our inheritance will actually live up to the hype. Then if you look again at verse 17, we see that uh, it says that we are also fellow heirs with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Fellow heirs with Christ? I mean, what is Christ the heir of? Well, the the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says he's the heir of a lot of things. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. So our inheritance is pretty incredible. But there's something else. Looking again at verse 17, there's a phrase right in the middle that says, Heirs of God. Heirs of God. Now, I don't know how well you remember your English classes. Um, I'm not sure how well I remember them. I have a degree in math, not English. But grammatically speaking, Heirs of God is a genitive phrase. A genitive phrase like love of God. And a genitive phrase can be read one of two ways. And it can mean something very different depending upon which way you read it. So let's take the phrase love of God, then we'll come back to heirs of God. The phrase love of God could, like all genitive phrases, could have God as the subject with the phrase referring to God's love for us. The same phrase love of God could have God as the object referring to our love for God. Does that make sense? Love of God can be read either way. Well, heirs of God, once again a genitive phrase, could mean that God is the subject and that we're the object, which means that we belong to God and we are heirs, which is true and that he's fixed his love upon us and made us his heirs by grace, but heirs of God can also be read with us as the subject and God as the object, which is actually much more radical to think about our inheritance is God that we are heirs of God. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. And this is actually something that's true, that's said even in the Old Testament. Asaph in Psalm 73 puts it this way, Whom have I in heaven but you? And There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my share, my inheritance forever. So what is our inheritance that flows out of our spiritual adoption. Well, friends, I think it's all of the above. It's all of the above. And so listen to how Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. sums it up. He says, All of God's promises will pour into our laps with a potency of joy we were created for but have never yet tasted. If you are an heir of God, if you are his and he is yours, if you will spend eternity exploring the infinite vastness of the wisdom and goodness and joy and power and love of your holy God, then you have indestructible, indescribable happiness. And right now, the gospel renews you as you savor the value of your inheritance. So our spiritual adoption means a lot. It means that we have a new identity, we have new intimacy, we have a new assurance, we have a new inheritance, but we also have a new family likeness. And we see this new family likeness in a couple of ways. The first is sanctification. See, I told you, all those words are going to show up. And I think we see sanctification back up in verse 14, if you look at that with me. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this section of Romans 8, if you remember the context from a few weeks ago, verses 12 and 13, the immediately previous verses, are talking about how, we are, how followers of Jesus are to put to death the sins of the body by the Spirit. And so Paul now in verse 14 is talking about being led by the Spirit. See, I don't think he's talking about guidance or direction in decision making, but he's talking about Spirit-led movement forward in the Christian life. Spirit-led movement toward obedience and holiness as we grow to become more and more like Jesus. Sanctification, led by the Spirit. And this is sanctification that's motivated by our experience of sonship, our experience of God's transforming grace and our adoption. Not motivated so that we can get it or so that we can earn it or so that we can prove ourselves worthy, but it's, it's sanctification and it's obedience motivated by the fact that we know that God... Cannot love us anymore, that he is deeply satisfied in us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. This family likeness. Whenever I was a little boy, one of my prized possessions was this little wooden block. A little wooden block, and it and you know it was like oh, that's a sad childhood. Okay, but it was a really great here, here's, here's special. There were three, it was covered on three sides. On one side it was, had my first grade uh, yearbook picture. On another side, it had my dad 's first grade yearbook picture. On a third side, it said, "Chip off the old block that 's right see i i 'm guessing my mom gave that to me i don 't know who did um, but but I love that thing, and I would love looking at it. I would look at it all the time and, and see just how how similar I looked to my dad, and we were both five or six, and and we did. We looked a lot alike, and that made me happy. It really did. I mean, it made me proud that I looked like my dad. And I remember going with my dad, and he would introduce me to um, to his friends, and he was a local politician, so we had lots of friends, lots of friends. And, um, and they would always, and I, I was so proud every time they would say, yep, that's definitely Charles Harris' the son. I can tell. You look just like your dad. I love that. And I think there's something about that that's supposed to flow out of our spiritual adoption if we are followers of Jesus. This this excitement, this desire to be conformed more and more into the image of our elder brother Jesus, to look more like him, to look more like our heavenly father, to, to love the things that he loves, to, to hate the things that he hates, to, to, to give ourselves to the things that he wants us to give ourselves to, to, to view his word as not only true, but good and given to us in love for our good. So this sanctification is not obedience to earn God's love, approval, acceptance, or adoption, rather, this is spirit-led movement towards obedience because we already know that we have God's love, approval, acceptance, and adoption. This is obedience out of, that overflows out of, the joy in our Abba Father. But there's a second thing that Paul says in this passage about this family likeness. And this is one we'd probably like to skip over, but it's true. And we know it's true, all of us do. And that is suffering. Suffering. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, suffering is a big topic. That requires another sermon. So come back next week. Paul is going to talk about that more in the next few verses, and so we'll spend a lot of time on suffering next week. But I do want to say something, and I thought about what to say, and I came across a really long quote from Pastor Ray Ortlund Jr., and he says it better than I can say it, and I thought, well, this is too long. Let me cut some things out, but I couldn't figure out what to cut out. And as I read this quote to you, let it, let it challenge you Let it open your eyes to what suffering is. Let it open your eyes to how suffering is, in fact, part of this family likeness, if, in fact, we are uh, sons and daughters of God. He says, "...God's children have always suffered with Christ. They have embraced His cross. They have obeyed Him in hard ways. Not all have been martyrs, but for all of us there will be suffering in this present evil age because the world loves God no more now than when they crucified Jesus." And if we are living each day in simple obedience, we will feel deep but holy sufferings. But we're glad to. After all, we're going to give ourselves to something. Why not something beautiful that lasts forever? In fact, Christians choose to suffer. We walk right into it with eyes wide open to the price we will pay. Why? Because we're not just suffering. We are sharing in His sufferings. We are bringing the love of Christ into hostile territory where it needs to be seen and felt. That's what Jesus did and following him is a privilege. Suffering does not earn us any glory. Jesus earned glory for us through his own meritorious sufferings, but our sufferings are meaningful preparations for glory. Pain burns the superficiality out of us. We stop caring about all the wrong things. In suffering, we can discover how sweet God really is. You see, suffering is how our adoption was secured. The suffering of the Son on the cross in our place is the price that had to be paid. So let me end with this. Do you remember how Jesus prayed in Mark chapter 14, the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's about to be arrested, he's about to be tortured, he's about to be nailed to the cross, and he prays. And that cup he's speaking about is the holy and perfect judgment and condemnation poured out on him for the sins of the world. He knows that's coming. He knows that's what he's called to do. And that's not a small thing. That's going to be the deepest suffering he'll ever have to do. And I want you to notice the intimacy here, right? How does he address God? As Abba, Father. And once again, that's exactly how Jesus prays every single time he prays in the Gospels. Always addresses God as either Father or Abba every time, except the last time he cries out to God in the following chapter, in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And there he cries, My God, my God, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, he's about, then he breathes his last breath. You see, friends, you see what that means? That the cost, the price that had to be paid for our spiritual adoption to give us our new identity, our new intimacy, our new assurance, our new inheritance, our family likeness, is the only true, the only begotten Son of God being treated like an abandoned orphan on the cross so that sinners like us could be adopted in to God's family as his dearly loved children. And so suffering is absolutely part of the family likeness. And we'll talk more about that. But friends, I hope, I hope you see. It's a shame, I hope you see just the significance of our spiritual adoption. It's a shame this wasn't five or six sermons because there's so much here. So I hope you agree with J.I. Packer that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, wow, that we can and we should address you as Father. Thank you for this incredible declaration that our spiritual adoption makes about us, that you make about us. This declaration of your love and your acceptance of us that is irreversible, that is dependent entirely upon your gracious choice in which you say that we are my, we are your sons and daughters and that you have brought us into your family. Father, please convince us that this is true. Bring the the glories of justification down to our hearts and adoption and then let that flow out into our lives through sanctification and suffering and suffering well. And so, Father, please, let us not forget this. Press it upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.